Hi, I'm Jason Sachs. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. This week, a conversation about one of my all-time favorite cartoonists and one of the most important cartoonists of his time, Steve Ditko. My friend Mark Stack joins me for about an hour of conversation, lively, fast-moving conversation at that, about one of the most interesting, oddball, and intriguing comics creators of all time. We talk about Ditko's unlimited creativity, about his incredibly innovative work, and about his uh, unique personality and style. Hope you enjoy it. It starts right after this ad. So what made you go down the path of reading more Ditko? Uh, I, uh, so it, it was because I started doing a lot of Kirby reading and just getting really into his uh, fourth world stuff and how inventive it was. And then just kind of remembering, oh, yeah, like simultaneously to like his time at Marvel, there's Ditko at Marvel and then at Charlton. And he's got the much more complex legacy in the sense that uh, we don't really we're not publishing like, uh, you know, Ditko 100 uh, anniversary issues or anything like that, even though his properties uh hate to even use that word properties when describing his work, but even though his properties are so valued now and well-known, he committing to that reclusive uh, lifestyle and committing to making his very singular work just made him so interesting because I wanted to see where that came from and how that was expressed, and there was kind of no better place to look at for that than his Charlton work after leaving Marvel because... That's him leaving Marvel because he's not getting enough uh, leeway. And here he is getting to do anything he wants to at a publisher that would, like, in ads, say, hey, buy our books. We need the money. <laughs> well, and you, yeah, that's some of the most interesting work, too. It, you hesitate to use the word autobiographical with it, but it definitely reflected his mindset. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the thing about that I really got hung up on was that his, I think it was his first question story in Blue Beetle number one, has basically the same ending as one of his stories in Mr. A number 18. And this is one of the more recent books that he funded with Kickstarter. And in the uh, the question story, it ends with Vic Sage giving his newscast and saying, let you be the judge of it. And then all around the city, people continue on not caring. And mm-hmm. then at the end of the Mr. A story, it's the same thing people not caring even though the truth is being told and i'm like oh you that bugged you your entire life and you never got over it and to just wonder what did it eat up at him to make these stories with this morality trying to influence people in the world and never fundamentally seeing a change like what what inspires you to keep making that same story when you don't notice an impact he did that same he, he played with those same themes for 50 years or longer too yeah it's it's so much time and i it it's it it's hard to escape the feeling that there's just a palpable heartbreak to a lot of those stories that just things don't go the way they're supposed to and people don't care about the same things he cares about and you, you can't help but kind of feel for the guy, even if, if his uh, ideology is kind of hateful. Yeah, we can get to the ideology separately, but I think 
I'm fascinated by the fact that he is both the winner in in terms of following his own rules about the way he wanted to live his life and the loser because he's a winner in that he's able to explore his own ideas all his life but never compromise on what he was presenting. You know, he would always, he, he refused to, to draw any comics with heroes who he didn't consider to be perfectly pure heroic. Yeah. And there's many stories about him refusing to take on a project or leaving a project because of that. Um, but at the same time, it seemed like he kept mining the same ground and maybe never quite was able to move beyond that frustration you were just talking about. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's sad to think that towards the end of his life, he had to seek outside funding to make these books because people didn't want these from him or they didn't want them on the terms that he could agree with. Uh, you know, it's hard to say whether or not publishing left him behind or he left publishing behind uh, entirely, but uh, it's just, it's, there. there's a certain sadness to it, but you also got to imagine it must have felt good in some way to receive that like very tactile support from people knowing that so many people wanted mr a stories to exist that they would give money towards the creation yeah i i don't know if i'd use the word sadness i think he it depends on what you call what you call sadness i guess he continued to pursue his vision for his entire life um and there's something very classically artistic about that Certainly. You know, even back to like the medieval times, the creators who were able to follow their own vision and that and medieval times is often a true vision um, were the ones who we can lionize now as having purity. Um, and the fact that he didn't he had a, a small but devoted audience for this work, which frankly is really obscure. I mean, if, if you bought any of those Kickstarters, the new work <laughs> is challenging, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> But the fact he can continue to he could continue to create that work into his eighties is amazing to me. You know, I, I think in some ways, well, like if you look at Kirby, for example, his late work is not especially good either. If you've read Superpowers or Yes. Uh, I'm a fan of Captain Victory, but it's not prime Kirby. Um, Eisner's later work isn't his best work. Like the plot, the protocols of the elders of Zion is not very good either. Um I kind of just am happy that he was able to follow his purity of vision. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I mean this actually in a pretty complimentary way. Reading this issue of Mr. A uh, from 2016, it doesn't read that differently from uh, Blue Beetle number one, which is from, I think, like 67 or 68. And right. the only thing that's different is it it's... It, it, the fact that he's not beholden to working with a uh, a scripter who's going to dialogue it for him and add in these uh, interstitial bits of narration in order to piece it together, it takes on an almost uh, even more uh, not even challenging but uh, intense quality because sometimes things will transition very suddenly. Uh, you'll shift into the other thing, and it it. In a page will almost read like a tone poem in a lot of yeah. ways because he's yeah. not doing the necessary uh, or what some people would say is necessary, what used to be necessary uh, building blocks. And it, it's it's true outsider art. This is someone who is completely outside the system making something to his own standard without any care about the previous or current standards. And that to me is a fascinating thing. 
and you called it savage. And that's where I feel it's fascinating at the same time because he ha- he created literally one of the top ten creative char- or characters in the world today, and he chose to follow his own muse. He didn't, as he sees it, compromise with the commercial realities and you know try and create a character that would follow in Spider-Man's footsteps. Instead, he followed his own vision. Yeah, and I I find that incredibly inspiring. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's so it it makes total sense that that Charlton would give him basically an entire line to work with based on what you said, how he made Spider-Man and uh, Doctor Strange and, you know, so many great characters. Uh, you know, he, he was certainly a guy who knew. Well, not even necessarily knew, but he had a sensibility that was striking uh, the right tone with people at the time. You know, just that magical lightning thing of knowing what is in tune with the zeitgeist, uh, which is, you know, strange considering he would so much remove himself from society. But reading those books, the spread of them uh, from Captain Adam to Blue Beetle and then the uh, the question stories, uh, they all read very differently, but still feel very singular. Yeah. Well, you could tell he put a lot of himself into that that work. Whether it's just like Captain Adam, which is just a kind of a more slick, heroic book, when he redesigns the characters and modifies his co- his uh, costume and, and powers to have him be more realistic, um, that's just a great superhero kind of reinvention. And those issues, uh, Captain Adam 83 and 84, are so interesting in the way that they <laughs> they don't, uh, to me, they don't read like comics of that era. They read more modern uh, for the way that they completely reboot the character in a fundamental way. And you get that fancy redesign. It It feels like something I would see in the 80s more than I would see in the 60s. So it was really shocking. It was like looking at a uh, like a different evolutionary end that was almost exactly what would come later, but you know had just a few different things from it, so it didn't survive the natural selection process the same way. But th- that's kind of my whole fascination with Charlton is it's a uh, almost an evolutionary dead end before the characters get scooped up by DC, and then all of a sudden these are the most important characters in comics because they are the foundation behind Watchmen. Mm-hmm. But they're important because of things they aren't, right? <laughs> yeah. Weird thing, too. <laughs> Especially now after the Watchmen TV show, it's like, it's not Captain Adam, it's Dr. Manhattan, and we all know Dr. Manhattan, and yet, you know, it's like this geeky thing to know this thing behind it. But the more you know about what's behind it, the more the, the whole joke of Watchmen makes sense, and it gets to be like this almost like funhouse mirror effect. Yeah, it... I found it so uh, simultaneously gross and funny that a lot of these stories that were being reprinted, uh, I read them in the Action Heroes Archives Volume 2, which I think you're quoted on the Amazon page for. Uh, it, Yeah, it's a great archive edition, and they repackaged most of the stories from this under a banner that says, uh, The Road to Watchmen, The Question in Blue Beetle. <laughs> And it just, it bummed me out to see that, to see that and them reduced to that legacy. But I also found it kind of funny, like, well, yeah, this is the foundational stuff and you need to put it out there. Sorry, I had to click over to Amazon to see. Oh my God, that's me. (laughs) 
The now we're in the vanity corner. Steve Ditko at perhaps the apex of his powers, coming straight from his epical runs on Amazing Spider-Man and Doctor Strange to run at Low Rent Charlton Comics. There's no question that Ditko loved the freedom he found at Charlton doing these stories. You could see Ditko's enthusiasm in every element of the stories he presents. Wow, that even sounds like me. <laughs> that That's is how you my speak. writing. <laughs> Yeah, so when I was going to buy that collection, I saw your name on there. I was like, all right, co-signed, cool. I know I'm getting some good stuff. <laughs> so yeah. going back a little bit, have you? what have you read of um, Doctor Strange? Uh, I've basically read the first story, and that's it. Uh, okay. I, I have a lot of corners that I haven't filled in yet that I plan to take time to fill in because uh, – I had a period where I tried to read everything influential at once and then nothing sunk in. So I'm trying uh -huh. to go slower and give it like actual years to kind of mature and get more experience with comics before I go back to some of the more okay. foundational things. Because, um, and that's a great approach to it because don't overwhelm yourself with it because after a while you'll say, oh, everything kind of is alike. Um, <laughs> yes. So Doctor Strange, especially the, the long, long Dormammu saga and Shade the Changing Man. Have you ever read Shade, Shade the Changing Man? I've read a couple straight issues from Dollar Bins. Okay. Are, uh, those are probably my two favorite Ditko works. Okay. Um, because they represent a lot of what you're talking about, which is, I think, what we can talk about when we talk about the question, which is, um, you alluded to that a minute ago when you're talking about these heroes do these events and announce them on TV and then no one pays any attention to them. Um, the brilliance of both Strange and Shade is that they're both saving the entire universe, devoting their entire life to it, going through all kinds of insanely complicated escapades, and no one has the slightest clue they're doing this work. Um, I, I can absolutely see that connection you're drawing there, and that, that feels really important. And it, it's a very kind of Anne Randian single hero who's fighting for society um, without society knowing or caring. It's very kind of Howard Rourke, you know? Yeah. Wow. And yeah. Um, that to me is like the core of what Ditko's heroes are all about. Um, did you see that kind of, I, I think you probably saw the same ideas, especially in the question. Yes. Uh, the question was the most fascinating of all those uh, characters to read because uh, it. I was surprised by what they could get away with under the Comics Code Authority at the time <laughs> because that's a, that's a pretty dark character and the resolutions are often criminals like, you know, dying horribly because the question is, he's like, oh, I won't save you because you did that yourself and I'm not going to step in to intervene like he he's got that you know very uh you know objectivist mindset and those stories are all just dealing with people who are cheats who uh break their vows who usurp the uh the titles of great men that that's one story that really stood out to me it's a uh, a character who steals a flight suit from a great circus performer and the question wants to stop him not because he killed the guy but because he took his position and took his greatness from him which is so loaded when you've read anything from Ayn Rand and you kind of know where he's coming from there mm -hmm. I think that's so interesting right because um, you're basically stealing someone else's reputation without deserving it yeah uh, and of all things to be furious about and yet it's so pure 
that that's in a way not to uh be too uh guessy about what motivated these stories but that feels like the kind of thing you would write after you had to work with stan lee uh-huh just someone who takes a little more credit for things than you think they should uh and that's clearly something that weighed on him for a long time in his decision to go it on his own and bet on himself well there's no question they had a difficult relationship have you read much about that whole side of things uh, I have no idea where they ended it. Uh, I haven't really read much beyond uh, early sections of Marvel Comics, The Untold Story, describing them. Yeah, I mean, the, the basic topic is very simple, really, that Lee and Ditko had a falling out at some point. And Ditko basically started doing 90% of the work on both Doctor Strange and Spider-Man. About Spider-Man 25 or 26, I have a reference here. There was a, I don't, I don't have the issue right at, at my fingertips. The issue after uh, the thing in the Human Torch guest star in Spider Man. Okay. 26. And Strange Tales 30, 135, which is August 65. Um, and they just had a falling out. And this, there, there's a number of different stories around that. <laughs> one is tied to the identity of the Green Goblin. That one I've heard. But Ditko basically said, I don't care about you, Stan. I'm just going to plot this stuff myself. You can dialogue it, but we're never, we're never going to talk again. And they never talked again. Um, but that's where a lot of fans think that work kind of got to another level. It's hard to deny that uh, stuff like the final chapter is like really great storytelling. Uh, but I, I'm loath to fully diminish the role of Stanley because when I think about those books, I also think a lot about the language in them and how uh how particular it is uh and you know flamboyant and uh bombastic in the literal sense of the word <laughs> a lot of bombast sim- sim- signifying nothing underneath it but uh <laughs> it's not yeah it's not to say that he didn't add a lot but it definitely gets it 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 becomes that groundbreaking material at that point and what's interesting is that Spider-Man or Peter Parker actually does grow. He's the one Ditko hero who becomes more engaged with society as the series goes on rather than less. Certainly. Uh, that's what always drew me to those uh, those 60 Spider-Man stories is that the early issues, they have the uh, the little bits at the end where they're like, oh, will he grow to be the world's greatest hero or greatest villain? Like they tease the idea that he might not turn out well. And the books are the, the education of Peter Parker through society and becoming the Ditko hero who won't compromise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I guess he were... did that. Go ahead. I guess he did that once and then figured that was good enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh so let's let's talk more about the the question then, because I got us off on a little bit of a tangent. Um, so you're talking you were talking a lot about Mysterious Suspense One, which is the famous story where he lets the criminal die in the end, and for a whole generation of comics fans, especially, uh, that might be Ditko's most controversial story. How did that read to you coming to it fresh? Did it read more mod- more contemporary, or did you still feel like the shock of the question letting that villain drown at the end well it, it reminded me more of a uh, an ec comic that was doing a morality play kind of thing uh which i thought was an interesting flavor to kind of bring into the stories because every question story 
that he did was, you know, functionally a morality play. Uh, mm -hmm. So that didn't seem far off to me, and especially because earlier stories had already had him very clearly expressing that he didn't care about the lives of people he tangled with once they made their choices. Like, there'd be a bit thrown at the end where he says, but I'll let the cops know to go fish you out if you survive the the swim. Uh, yeah. But, you know... That's it, probably the editor throwing that in. Certainly. Uh, Got to get approved by the code. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. <laughs> but... Yeah. I, I It didn't read that different. In fact, it read as as a more firm statement about what this character and these stories were. Uh, it, very uncompromised and... Honestly, probably my favorite one. That's the uh, yeah, that's the only like what they called like novel length question story that he did because the rest were backups. Mm -hmm. And I I was so intrigued by the world he created, too. He did a great job, I thought, of just introducing Vic Sage and the world he lives in in just a few pages. And I felt myself drawn into it in ways that he didn't quite put that same effort in for the Mr. A stories. No, no. Uh... I feel like the Mr. A stories kind of take some investment for granted, which, you know, that's fair. You did that over 40 years. You already put the work in. I guess you don't have to build it fresh every time. But the uh, the world of, of, uh, of the question stories is so populated with people who only speak in directly, like, dialectic ways, who are, yeah. like, speaking very directly about their beliefs and saying, oh, Vic Sage, you should compromise so that we can get better ratings or <laughs> something. And uh, that that keeps it also heightened in so Funhouse Mirror, which really makes the world feel uh, kind of scary to me. Uh, like, they read, like, horror stories to me, even when they're not dealing with... Uh, guys in diving suits coming to murder their former partners. It's just, uh, it, it's a very different mode. It's it's very comfortably sitting in horror for me. Oh, that's really interesting. So he's presenting this as heroic work, but you really felt like the heroic, or, or horror, horror elements, I think I might be feeling this whiskey, are uh, <laughs> coming to the surface more for you. Yeah, because, I mean, Vic Sage is the one good man. <laughs> In a world where everyone else is presenting these different competing points of view of how you can do less and take more. And it's it's not comforting to have him be the one good man. It's it feels kind of isolating and, and scary in turn. Yeah, that's very interesting. And it feels very contemporary in that way. Yeah, I uh, recently started reading the uh, Denny O'Neill, Dennis Cowan question series from, uh, I think, 87. Mm -hmm. And it was fun to it was fun to compare that to it because I feel like they accepted the task of portraying that character accurately very well. Uh, but the world is a little less alien and scary and feels obviously more grounded. I think Denny O'Neill put a lot of his own relationship to his own places he had lived, uh, particularly St. Louis in there. Uh so that felt more grounded, and obviously they're, they're taking that character on a very different journey, given that Ditko didn't take him on any journeys. He just let him be the uh, executioner at the end of a chopping block. Right, right. That's really it. He was, everything's in black and white. He's the executioner, and he literally will let people die who commit relatively minor crimes because um, they're breaking the morality of the society that he wants to live in. Yeah. And and that's the thing. It's uh, 
the way he treats it, crime and dishonesty damaged the metaphysics, like the reality itself. They are fundamentally decaying sources to existence, and he can't allow them to be around. It, uh, to have someone who thinks that singularly and to have characters who corrupt everything around them is it it reminds me more of a uh, great Japanese film called Sword of Doom than anything where uh, the focus is on what happens when someone chooses not to agree with the sense of morality that everyone else does. And it's scary to see how quickly that can make people fall apart because these these you know villain characters, they just do one thing and all of a sudden people give in to base urges or let go of the rules that they've all been you know together on. And the whole semblance of society collapses. Wow. I'm so tempted to start talking about its implications in our modern political world. But um, (laughs) maybe I should stay away from that and keep it comic focused. That's so interesting, though. Um, I think my favorite story um, among that set is the Blue Beetle story about the destroyer of heroes. Um, The famous story about modern art. Huh. I and the, don't think I remember that one very well. So that's the that's from Blue Beetle Five, um, which starts at the splash page is um, has an art critic who's basically saying what what art is all about is the uh, debasement of humanity. Um, it's a perfect example of art that reveals the true spirit of man as he really is. The entire form is nondescript, lacking the usual grotesque heroic pose. The hissing eyes, a profoundly human touch with which we can all identify man's weaknesses. Uh, and the, the, the art has a deliberate lack of heart. So Ditko's like criticizing modern art, but then this guy dresses up as this modern art, which is this brutish creature with no heart. And um, both, um, both Big Sage and the guy who is the Blue Beetle um, are praising this kind of super heroic art, which uh, oddly real, feels very almost Nazi-like. And the hippies are supporting the debased art, the modern art, and the squares are supporting the um, the fine art, huh. the uh, very Nazi-style art. Um, it's got some beautiful Ditko-style action sequences, but in the end, it, it follows the same kind of Ditko-esque vision that... Um, all art is intended basically to lift up humanity rather than to destroy humanity or in his mind, debase the, the artfulness of humanity. Um, and it is a fascinating way of kind of presenting a, a lot of the same argument in terms of art, as opposed to in terms of politics. That is very interesting. I'm flipping through right now. And I guess I, you know, to have a, philosophy about what art is and to stick to it so strongly like to believe that it's the text by which people govern themselves or learn values or morality or ethics uh that's an incredible responsibility to put on yourself mm-hmm. and you know un- and unfortunately you're right it does kind of line up with some fascistic uh aesthetics uh i'm looking at the one right now the uh uh, on page 11 of that story, uh, there's a image in the background of a almost like Hercules-like figure wearing a loincloth, and it's very much like value-strength kind of image. Right, right. And the, the villain is the guy in the front who's 
got the long face looking depressed because he can't be lifted up as a hero, basically. Yeah. Interestingly, that's almost a critique about what the value of this art, because he's not able to see himself reflected in it and thus chooses a destructive form. Mm-hmm. That that's that's almost a statement right there that I could see having modern value. Yeah, I mean, this uh, the, re- the one of the reasons I bring this up is because I feel like this story is a little bit of a manifesto. Certainly. He's saying, essentially, don't read the stuff that debases humanity. And you got to think about the time he's creating this, too, 1968, when um, comics like films and other art forms were really debased, not debasing, but the heroes of that time were not really heroes in the same way. You know, Butch casting the Sundance Kid won the Oscar, I think, that year, and they were not heroes, really. Um, And um, I, I just see this as Ditko saying, basically, don't trust these people who are telling you humanity can't be lifted up because I'm showing you that we can. And yet at the same time, you almost read the subcurrent of like, I'm rejecting modern society, specifically in this case, embodied by the hippies who rally around the, uh, the, the uh, modern art creature. They're literally cheering him on on page eight. I think it is eight and 10. Yep. Um, and it just presents such a fascinating portrait of how Ditko saw the world. Yeah. And in another more uh, mercenary way, it reads like uh, telling you to read Charlton comics instead of Marvel comics. <laughs> it's true. Read my stuff. Uh, the question story in that same issue is a sequel of sorts to the same story. Yeah, because you got stage in the main body of that, too. And that's a whole other very, very cool thing about reading these stories all together is um, he builds this world with the, where these characters all live. And you, it is very much what you're talking about earlier or what you were talking about earlier, which is this alternate vision of what Charlton could have been. Yeah, it's the whole action heroes line is so interesting. Uh, I also got really obsessed with uh, Pete Morrissey's uh, Peter Cannon Thunderbolt Uh I tracked down some issues of that. They're not great, but they're fun. <laughs> but this whole line was really interesting to me because they wanted the goal was to be less fantastic, less superhero and more two fisted heroes uh, mm-hmm. while still maintaining some of the aesthetics in order to get readers in the door. Uh, and I find that so interesting that they they wanted to focus on the humanity of them and they ended up throwing their uh, weight behind a guy who didn't think too much of humanity. <laughs> But wanted to uplift must... it simultaneously. Well, I think they must have just been so happy to have him working for them. Um, and he was so enthusiastic about taking on any work he could take that um, he, he was just happy to... Uh, they would just give him whatever he wanted to work on. I mean, Dick Giordano was, was his editor at the time. And he was no fool about knowing he had kind of lightning in a bottle. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Yeah, Charlton... Uh is just really fascinating uh, for all that for all that influence that they've had long term and for how much they struggled to maintain readership uh, at the time. I think the action heroes line, you know, didn't last very long. Uh, They ended up canning that pretty early. Uh, You know, they were clearly searching for something that would resonate. And, you know, you can see how Steve Dicko could have done that if he had if he had simply gone in thinking, okay, let me do something like over in Marvel, 
But he mm-hmm. clearly changed his perception and was like, no, time to do something that's exactly you. You've got the carte blanche. Uh, they're happy to have you. And he throws it all in on this uh, this world that is uh, honestly very, very alienating and kind of intimidating. Alienating and intimidating. Uh, so not the most welcoming world. <laughs> no, I mean, those uh, those Blue Beetle stories are pretty fun, uh, especially the earlier ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can see how that's filling like the meat and potatoes superhero story thing. But those Captain Adam stories are really moody. Uh, he's he's such an asshole. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, I mean, early on in uh, like 83 and 84, he's got this uh, vendetta against him by uh, a reporter. And he's just in his civilian identity thinking about how he's going to make a fool of her. <laughs> it's he's he's a hard guy to like uh along so many ways and it's just curious to know did likability even become a concern to him did he even think about it in terms of how to make a character that the audience would have investment in i don't know that's a good question or did did giordanos basically say um keep doing compelling work and people will keep reading it whether or not this character is a jerk and honestly, I kept reading those stories very excitedly. I, I did not read this this collection all in one, one straight through sitting. I went through, read the uh, Captain Adam stories, then fished around for the Blue Beetle in question. Uh, and those Captain Adam stories are a mixed bag towards the middle in the end, but very exciting and invigorating at the start. Uh, and it is very compelling. I would honestly... I would say to someone who wants to go back and discover the history behind Watchmen, you won't actually be that disappointed. These characters are also thorny and complex in much the same way. Like, it's clearly the foundation for that kind of take. Like, there's, you can say it's the genius of Alan Moore, but really there was something there to work with. And that was Ditko giving all this thorny material to sift through and work with. Yeah, I think so too. I think it, it's it's all there. Uh, we should talk about the the question, or uh, rather, Rorschach, in a bit. Let's get to, let's try and get to that at some point because that's where it gets most difficult. But I think in terms of the characters feeling at least contemporary of their time, they certainly do. And I would argue that they do feel more like '70s characters, and that they're like he's willing to make them unlikable. Yeah, it's it's. You know, I, I, it's a cliche to say, but it is ahead of its time. And it took someone who didn't fundamentally care that much about the idea of likability, who didn't seem to, he didn't care what the audience wanted, but thought a lot about what they needed, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, Charlton cared less about sales than a lot of other publishers. For whatever reason, they were never the best distributed books. Um, and, and they never really were um, invested in the fan market very much either. I mean, it's really only during the Action Heroes time that um, they really got a lot of, uh, really any attention in the fan press. And then that ended essentially when Giordano and Steve Skates and Danny O'Neill and Steve Ditko went back to D.C. And that's when he created The Creeper and Cock and Dove. Um, But for that brief period, um, like Charlton was kind of putting these books out, but uh, they the stakes were lower, I guess, than they were were at Marvel at the time. 
Yeah. Uh, what really uh, informed me a lot about the situation at uh, at Charlton was I read this great issue of Alter Ego, uh, one fifty nine, uh, which was covering uh, Pete Morrissey's career and a lot of its uh, actual letters that he sent back and forth between fans and also Giordano talking about the line and. He was a guy who drew very slowly, uh, who wanted to control his strip and not let other people work on it that much. And to the best of their ability, Giordano and Charlton gave him as much leeway as possible. And then when that didn't work out, they retired the strip and found plenty of other like work for him in Westerns and other books. And it just seems like a company that was really focused on taking care of its people. Uh, they seem to have a... They had the lowest page rates in the industry at the time, so they made sure that they took care of people and gave them a nice workspace. And I feel like that kind of shows in the work, that these are people who felt very secure in what they were doing, and they didn't have to reach for gimmicks. Yeah, they had tremendous freedom working for Charlton, because Charlton effectively didn't care what they were putting out as long as they had books on the stands. They were such a low-end magazine publisher, um, they didn't... The, the and comics were just a small sidelight of their entire business that they were just as as I remember, they just wanted to keep the printing presses going all the time because they actually own their own printing presses. Oh, that explains a lot. Do you, do you know much about Charlton? Uh, not much, not much more than what I read in the uh, introduction and afterward to the uh, Action Heroes archive and then in the letters from Pete Morrissey with uh, Giordano and other uh, fans. So this is all going by memory, and I don't want to ever go clicking on the internet while we're chatting on Skype. Uh, but Charlton was a publish, like an end-to-end publishing house. The books that they published actually came out of their printing presses, and their printing press was attached to their editorial offices in Derby, Connecticut, which is like middle of Connecticut, north of New York City. Um, and folks like Dick Giordano and George Wildman and other editors would actually drive to the Derby offices and watch their books be produced um, coming off the presses. Um, the rumor was that they printed cereal boxes. Uh, and I know for a fact they produced um, stuff like crossword puzzle magazines and other kind of low-end sort of things, like the same kind of stuff you would see people publishing crossword and word search and Sudoku books now. Okay. And they had to they had to keep the presses going. Uh, and so the comic line would expand and contract based on the overall success of the company and by how much they were able to keep the presses going with other work. So that there were really only there's generally only to be con- generally considered two kind of golden eras of Charlton. Uh, one was that during the the uh, Dick Giordano period, which is basically 66 to 68. And then there was a period in the mid-1970s when George Wildman was publishing or was the editor-in-chief. And they published uh, early John Byrne work as well as late Ditko work. um, And they had a few licensed titles. Uh, The most well-known are stuff like E-Man. And um, they did a um, a Space 1999 adaptation and other other stuff like that. Okay. Uh, But basically... And there was rumors that the company was Maba owned. And so basically the comics were just a small sidelight for the company. And as long as they were selling in reasonable numbers and they were getting out on the stands, um, the publishers effectively didn't care that much about what was being published in them. 
that was really driven by editorial. <laughs> that sounds people, like a fascinating culture. As long as people were willing to work for low rates, everything was fine with them. And so like the people like Morrissey and Ditko who were willing to put in the work at those rates just produced some of their favorite work they ever did uh, because they had no control over what they did. Other people just found it to be, you know, just a place to hack out work. Hmm. So there's a lot of great work from from the 70s by people like Tom Sutton, who's a great horror artist. And um, actually, a lot of Ditko's work uh, from that era is just amazing. The Art of Ditko from Craig Yo, published by IDW that reprints a few of Ditko's 70s Charlton stories, and they're incredible. Yeah, I was shocked to find uh, reading these books. I was like, I, I know they were done after uh, Amazing Spider-Man, so it, it would make sense to see uh, artistic refinement or improvement. But I was surprised by how much I enjoyed the art more than I enjoyed the, uh, the Spider-Man books. Uh, and not, not to say they're not, they weren't great. Uh, I just found uh, the work in in these books to be so exciting and to see him working in uh, his nine panel grid and really getting a sense of rhythm and pacing in that it just it felt like seeing someone switch into a higher gear yeah yeah isn't there that strong feeling of that in this charlton work that he found his right rhythm i really like that keep going i want to hear more how you how you felt he was kind of achieving a higher gear. Well, uh, so to talk about uh, his grid choices, uh, I before reading this, I didn't know where the nine-panel grid in Watchmen came from. I just was like, oh, Dave Gibbons wanted to do that, so they did it, and that's as far as I knew. And then reading this, it felt like the most obvious click in my head. We are like, oh, of course Ditko was doing that, <laughs> and they picked up on that. And reading him like, oh, because it's immediately apparent that it's a great pacing tool and he uses it really well. He knows when to break out of it, especially uh, and he'll kind of combine the uh, the three by three with a uh, kind of a six by or th- two by three and he'll fudge panels at the bottom. And it it's the sense that he's working with a really tight structure, but he's able to deviate from it and do anything else that he wants at any point. And it's it's that complete freedom to play, uh, as they say in like, you know, jazz, uh, what notes he's playing versus what notes he's not playing when he chooses not to go with the grid or to form some panels together. uh, It's it's clearly the work of someone who's working on a deadline, but also who feels complete control over how this is going to be expressed and knows no one is going to ask him to correct it or make it more clear or anything like that. It's it's unencumbered. It's a mastery of the medium, right? It's someone who's really at the top of his game and breaking his own rules in the smartest possible ways. Yeah, and it and it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like he chose to do a grid because that was the easiest way to do it. It feels like no, the story will be better if I do that because I can totally get the rhythm going and make it feel of a piece with itself and make each page feel of a piece with the previous page. It, it grants such a unity to the work. It really does pull everything together. Yeah. Um, have you seen much of his Warren comics work? I'm completely unfamiliar. 
I think there's a, a Warren collection of Ditko's work. And the, exactly what you're talking about with him playing with the grid, he does more there than anywhere else. So that work was coming out contemporary to this work, actually. Wow. Um, and it's all in black and white. And he uses a number of different techniques. Some of it's got beautiful wash work, for example. Um, but he's all he also does amazing things with panel arrangements where um, he has a beat, for example, to play with a steady beat and then break it up in, in big moments in ways that just explode off the page. Uh, there's one story that's basically like a haunted house story where he shows like a goat, uh, someone's eyes at the bottom of each panel slowly waking up. So that in the last panel, like the payoff is just this beautiful thing. But the, the progression is like nothing else I've ever seen. That sounds incredible, and I'm going to have to make sure I get a copy of that. Uh, so, yeah, he is just a master at, like, playing with the form. Yeah, and uh, it, it's, it's interesting to compare that to, uh, to Kirby, who I was doing so much reading of, and see how uh, he approached he, I would characterize his approach of the grid. I won't say that he approached it this way, but I would characterize his approach as this is what works uh like he knows nuts and bolts what fu is functional and what will get the job done whereas it feels like dicko is experimenting at times i'm looking at a uh, a panel from a question story it's the uh nine panel grid but he breaks one of those panels into four even smaller panels yeah. and you get the sense that he's he's really getting away with something like he's not supposed to be doing this is kind of the feeling of it, but he can do it and he can do it with such style and such a plum because uh, these four little panels inside one uh, one nine panel are just all these great little focus shots of people uh, facing front face behind a newspaper behind the head up close on a cigarette. It's just there's so much style and differentiation and he's not going to the same uh, angle or trick at every point he's differentiating it and in turn creating that musical rhythm even even stronger yeah he's got he's using the freedom of jazz but he's probably the least jazz oriented creator you can think of it's a <laughs> really interesting dichotomy right yeah i mean it he really is a study in contrast like to be such an, a playful creator on those stories while having absolutely no sense of fun about the question in his exploits. <laughs> right. Right. So it's like this very strange combination. Yeah. And that's that it's those kinds of contradictions and those kinds of uh, playful things that have made me uh, not that you have to choose, but it's made me more of a Ditko guy when I go back because it's just so interesting. I'm like, what? What inspired these choices? Or w w I, I can't quite tell where things are coming from. Uh, even you have the backing of kind of what his general philosophy was. You can kind of see a disconnect in how playful he was as a creator. Mm -hmm. No, when you see with the even with the Kickstarter books, there's an element of playfulness. Like they may be weird, but he's having a great time. Oh my god, energy, yes. And in the latest work, in the fight scenes, especially where like he's just genuinely just enjoying himself. Oh, I, I'm looking at uh, uh, Mr. A number 18 right now. Uh, he's 
fighting some guy who uh, looks like a ghoul, uh, has a bunch of lines on his face, got some hair coming out of him, just looks like a big rubbery monster. And uh, he approaches him being tied up in a sack with these all black backgrounds and these close-ups of eyes with the whites of the eyes being the only white in the panel and then juxtaposing those with images of Mr. A. It's very haunting stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's it's an interesting question. Are you a Ditko person or a Kirby person? Um, I feel like like they appeal to two different sides of me. Yeah, I mean, I I would say I love both equally, but I find Ditko probably more interesting just because... I can't quite figure it out in the same way, whereas Kirby shared so much of his uh, philosophy behind his work and it has been so evangelized by people that there's kind of a narrative that you can latch onto with him. And the narrative with Ditko is that he was bitter and left the industry, <laughs> and that doesn't give you everything. I don't think Ditko's bitter, though. That's the thing. That, and- but that's kind of the narrative that gets pushed. Yeah, I don't think that's an accurate narrative. Um, and I also think we make too much out of him not talking to the fan press because I kind of th- feel like that's a tangent. Um, yeah, I feel like that's completely unrelated. He didn't owe anyone anything, so he didn't do it. I mean, yeah, exactly. And I realize a part of the legend of Jack Kirby is he was so kind to his fans. But... Um, I think that's a case where, like, the news reporters are complaining about lack of access to politicians or something, where ordinary people just don't care. Yeah, Um, I mean, he wanted his relationship with readers to be through the work, and he maintained that. And I think that's kind of respectable that he just said, no, you're going to have this one relationship with me, and that's it. I don't want to do anything else. And we can see himself through his work, as he always asks us to do. Uh, speaks louder than his own words, I think. Certainly. Um, but I do love Kirby. It's just like, I feel like Kirby is a Hollywood blockbuster. It goes an indie film. Certainly. Uh, and, and funnily enough, like his work is very uh, noir in tone, even if his characters are less com- uh, less compromising. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I get kind of a sense of, uh, uh, did you ever see The Long Goodbye with uh, with Gould? Yeah. Yeah, I get kind of a sense that his characters operate a lot like Robert Marlowe in that, and that they're kind of out of time and trying to understand what the new rules are, but rather than bend to them, find a way to continue with themselves. <laughs> and in some ways that makes them passive, but in others they're more active. Obviously the question's very active, pushing his perspective whereas the other characters are more reactive oh i like that a lot so you're basically saying um a lot of his work is about him trying to find the place of his of a hero in a society that that kind of rejects that type of heroism yeah because we look at those mr a stories and those question stories people broadly don't care about what Vic Sage has unveiled and they're not going to change their ways just because he had a great newscast about it uh, you know the, the question may stop a guy from killing his business partners but he can't stop the business partners from being corrupt after that yeah well and the lack of attention to you know Dr. Strange especially and Shade 
is what makes them great characters that they they continue to be heroic despite the fact that nobody cares in in many ways that makes them even more heroic yeah exactly exactly and there's his morality is in the end the the more purest version of yourself i guess the purest version of a randian hero is someone who continues to do what's right in randian terms whether or not he's getting opposition to it whether or not anyone's paying attention to it and i guess in a way that's what it means to be a moral person in a modern society um i feel like we just found found something profound here i i i want to keep going with my thought if you don't mind because like yeah i just like triggered something in my head so think about the time he was doing this charlton work especially this is the 60s so 68, right? He did a lot of this work in 66, 67, 68. This is, 68, of course, is like the worst year in American history with all the assassinations. And um, the world just felt like it was falling apart. 66 and 67, the boomers are starting to get to an age where they're changing the world. And everything Ditko understood as a kind of conservative Western Pennsylvania kid um, was no longer part of society. So imagine how alienated he must have felt and his characters may have, I'm just throwing this out there, represented um, his view of morality, the proper morality of the time, which was drifting away. I couldn't agree more with that, that summation. Yeah, I, uh, I would particularly say his perspective does seem to change over time because, uh, when I'm looking at that first question story, they uh, someone harps on him and says, oh, Vic Sage, uh, can't you just tell the facts like they are and be less inflammatory? And then reading Mr. A number 18, uh, the head of a newspaper says, no, only objective news, no spin. And I'm like, OK, so you did kind of change your perspective a little bit. You got less into the idea of the newsman as a crusader and more into just give them the facts and let the people decide. And I feel like that has to be motivated by that mindset that you, you know, you just delved into, which is the world is changing around me, but I'm not going to change. But we have to deliver things objectively, given that objectivist background, uh, deliver them objectively and still give people the chance to make that proper choice. In a sense, his stories are still presenting the morality and saying, you can still make this choice, even if you exist in a world that doesn't really think about you in that way or doesn't give you the space to you can still choose to be a better person than the person next to you they're like parables certainly i mean uh i called them this earlier uh, they totally read to me as morality plays mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the role of uh god is kind of played by vic sage <laughs> <laughs> well that's a strong statement the role of god and yet none of us are divine none of us have the divine word and certainly certainly Anne Rand was not divine <laughs> no i i would not say <laughs> uh i did not think there was one divine word in atlas shrugged <laughs> huh. yeah so yeah um and then these heroes like we were saying earlier got kind of transformed into the uh heroes of watchmen characters of watchmen not sure we can call them heroes especially rorschach rorschach Certainly is not. kind of the ultimate uh culmination of 
of um, objectivist thinking in some ways, kind of going over the top. Yeah, and ultimately they do that so that they can push him to the edge and then see whether he bends or breaks. And being a true Ditko hero, he would rather break than bend. Right. Because A is A, white is white, black is black, and gray is not an area where you should ever exist. Yeah, I mean, not even exist there it doesn't exist is his point of view if you've chosen to live in the gray you're actually in the black and you're lying to yourself and to have keep going sorry okay so to to kind of have that uh that view that there is no in between and by saying that there is you're siding with the opposition is such a if you're not with us you are therefore against us mindset right and then what, what does that mean for just surviving in society without feeling like you're constantly compromising yourself? Yeah. And the conclusion that Moore and Gibbons get to is you can't, you die. <laughs> right. And ultimately it'll make you crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I, the first time I read it, the uh, kind of the explanation for why Rorschach uh, developed the way that he did that that story that horrible story about the uh, the girl who was kidnapped it made perfect sense that that would be what would break him because the order of how society works this man gets arrested and goes to jail for what he did it fundamentally doesn't make sense that that would be your punishment for something so vile uh to you know feed a girl to a dog it's it's horrible and his in that moment the the kind of magic of that book is his solution, which is killing that man, makes total sense to me reading it. And then only later, after I'm not reading it, I realize, oh, that's also horrifying because he allowed that to turn him into something. He wasn't able to see how his harsh reaction to the evils of the world contorted him. And for all his talk about being the objectivist hero, of being the person who will not bend, he unknowingly was bent by society without even realizing it. Mm Mm-hmm. I think he's also saying you, you may say you're following objective truth, but how do we how can we define what objective truth is? How do you know you're following a true objective truth, especially in a world where morality is continually you continually battling against the dark edges of morality? Yeah, uh, tr- truly to this day, a book that I can read pretty much any time and still find myself asking the same questions and then even further questions and not finding answers, which is what I love about it. It doesn't give you answers. It just gives you questions. Yeah. I mean, I've read it uh, since the day it came out. I've read it probably 25 times and it stands up like no other graphic novel. Yeah. And, and for that to come out of, Dicko's work and to at times be oppositional to it is I think what gives it a lot of that creative verve that that ineffable quality that so many people recognize in it it comes from the fact that it exists within a continuum within a history and our I think our understanding and our relationship with that work can only improve and become more fully realized by going back and reading these stories uh, like those contained in the uh, Action Heroes archives and seeing what the relationship is, what the history is, because as great as more Gibbons were, they were standing on the shoulders of giants. 
Right. And and it doesn't trivialize or minimize the work Ditko did to bring up Watchmen because I think it stands on its own, but it becomes more interesting as part of this larger continuum of history, yeah. which now includes a TV show. Which I did not see, but I've heard was uh, very thrilling in its portrayal of American society. Yes. Yeah. And what they do with the Rorschach concept is fascinating. Yeah, I I saw the ads like they uh, they tied that into white supremacy, which makes total sense and uh, reads to me as a pretty, pretty strong continuation of that character's right wing mindset from the book. I mean, he writes into his favorite right wing newspaper in that book. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what what are other favorites that you've read by Ditko? Uh, really, this is it. This is the, uh, kind of the start of me plumbing deeper in. I would never say I'm an expert, but I am an enthusiast. Okay. Uh, so probably next for me is to, uh, either pick up his, uh, DC archives, which, uh, contain shade, uh, which I have a great interest in because that's a character with a weird history, <laughs> uh, in terms of how he's been rebooted and used differently. So I would very much like to see what the, uh, the clay was that people were working with. And then I got to check out those Warren books and some of his crime stories. Yeah, I see Creepy Presents Steve Ditko is uh, still available. It's got a perfect five-star rating. <laughs> well, I'll only add to that. <laughs> um, yeah, those are all great choices. Um, you know, I've written thousands of words about Ditko over the years. I was a contributor to, his, to a fanzine called Ditko Mania. And I had articles and... 30 or so issues of it. So I've written, you know, maybe 50, 60,000 words about Ditko. And um, I'm not sure I could write 50 or 60,000 words about most any other creator. I think there's just a level of commitment to vision he has that almost no other, no other creator has. Because he's continually working from his philosophical heart. Um, he would not make compromises to uh, to just continue to be published because he kind of didn't care as a lifelong bachelor whose life was um, who didn't need much in his life. He was never really strongly motivated by the financial side of things. Um, but I, I so I think he's just a great example of a creator who was able to completely follow his vision for much of his life and even his work for higher work from the um, 80s after like Shade failed is still just wonderful. There's um, work in a, a black and white issue of Doctor Strange magazine that's just gorgeous. Um, it's completely noir focused. And then of course he's the guy who also introduced Squirrel Girl to the Marvel Universe. I completely forgot about that but now I'm remembering it and I find that so charming. Yeah, so like the guy was continually creating really for 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 a long freaking time and the fact he kind of went out really standing on his own two feet whether anyone else reading his work or not aside from the 200 people who bought the kickstarters he was standing on his own two feet he's doing his own thing he was producing work that mattered to him without compromise and that's i think the way any creator would want to go through his life that's a victory that's uh, i mean looking at my own experience as a creator I don't like the idea of compromising to work with certain people or compromising because I just want to get a book finished. 
And to know that there was a guy like that who did it his own way the entire time just shows, yeah, you can exist in this pretty exploitative industry, but you can still do what you want if you're just committed to the idea that it is ultimately for you. Yeah, the beauty is no matter what you buy from Ditko, it's just you'll end up rereading it a few years later and seeing different things in it too. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. I am very excited at the idea of the lifelong relationship with the work. Yeah, it just gets better and better because the more you live with it, the more experience you bring to it. And there's so much there to discover. Um, the 70s work at Charlton is amazing. Um, yeah. Fanographics has, I think, six volumes of early work that's also fascinating. Um, so yeah, you you'll be able to, you can dig into this really for the rest of your life. I'm planning on it. Oh, thank you.